Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. Today's episode is a special feature from the World Economic Forum in Davos, where I sat down with JPMorgan Chase CEO, Jamie Dimon, and his chief of staff, Judy Miller. Jamie has been part of the Female Quotient's Equality Lounge in Davos for many years, and I'm grateful to him and Judy for continuing to champion women. In this conversation, we spoke about the value of diversity, equity, and inclusion at JPMorgan Chase, the equal importance of all stakeholders to the firm, and Jamie's tips on being more efficient every day. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. Thank you all for being with us for this panel today. My name is Sam Saperstein. I had women on the move at JPMorgan Chase. We are a really proud partner of the female quotient and really have been here for several years now in Davos and around the world with them. So thank you to Shelley and the whole team. Of course, I don't think I really need to introduce my boss here, the CEO of JPMorgan Chase, Jamie Dimon, and his chief of staff, Judy Miller. And so we thank you both for being with us each year. It's been a pleasure and we thank you for making the time. So let's get started. Jamie, would love to really kick things off to you to understand what's on your mind as we look into 2023 and what's on the horizon. So first of all, thrilled to be here again. Thank you for doing it too. It's a long trip for you all. There's only one thing taking place in 2023 that matters for the future of the world. And that's what's going on in Russia, Ukraine, related trade, China, security, the trade issues around national security, what it's going to do to energy prices, oil prices, poor nations. That is the most significant thing. I've been coming to Davos for 20 years and people always worried and they're worried about this and worried about that. I don't worry that much. This stuff I would put in a high concern. The economy will sort out, have a mild recession or a harder one. I call that normal weather. But this other stuff is abnormal. You've never lived through in your lifetime. And Jamie, you've talked really recently about the need for global coordination, and you're here in Davos, and that is on the agenda too. How do you think the U.S. and other countries can really do more together to solve some of these issues? I should have ended by saying that. And this is about whether the Western world can stay together. That's what this is about. The question is, is the world going to be safe and free for democracy? And that is the question that's now in front of a new generation of people. And this is a warm-up. Ukraine is kind of a warm-up to see we can get act together, military, diplomatic. And it's not just military. It's diplomatic. It's aid. It's helping Latin America. It's helping Africa. And hopefully we'll meet the challenge. In the U.S. in particular, what's your thoughts on can we really bridge the divide between the two sides? Is there anyone you think is doing it well trying to get to consensus? Well, you talk about the Republican-Democrat thing? Yes. So first of all... (laughs) That that thing. Well, if you look at American history, when people say it's never been like this before, that's just not true. It's called democracy. And, you know, I've been watching now, and when one person's elected and they don't like it, I can't believe so-and-so. It's like the people who want democracy only seem to like it when the person they voted for got elected. It's sloppy. Now, I think in the long run, it's far better than autocratic. Okay, and you see what happens to autocratic nations. They make mistakes. Their bosses aren't told the truth. It leads to errors. It leads to malallocation of capital. It leads to politics and all these various things. So it's kind of ugly, but that's the working of a democracy. And I do think if you look at what happened in the last couple of years, there were several bipartisan bills. The infrastructure bill is bipartisan. The gun bill is bipartisan. There's several partisan bills, IRA and the American Rescue Plan. But again, like I said, that's democracy. And I do think the American government, President Biden and Jake Sullivan and Anthony Blinken and Secretary of State and National Security have done a very good job coalescing support of the world for Ukraine. We have to make sure it's sustained because unfortunately, we could be sitting here three years from now and still be talking about it because wars have unpredictable endings and unpredictable lanes. 
If you don't believe me, look at Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iran, World War I, when Czechoslovakia happened in 1938, no one expected World War II. We have to be prepared for a longer siege here. So energy is clearly top of mind, too, with this war. I'd love for you to really reflect on the energy transition. And we do bank many companies in the more the traditional energy space. Can you talk about that from serving client perspective, why it's important to still stay with them as we transition to new energy sources? Yeah, we have a really complex problem here, okay, which is we all want to get CO2 down, but we also need reliable, secure energy and cheap. If it's not cheap, you see what happened in Europe that the price... Basically, people are turning back on coal plants. And that doesn't just include Indonesia and China and India. It includes Germany and the Netherlands. We have to be very thoughtful about this. We have to be up to the challenge. We haven't really been up to it yet. So people think yelling at banks and climate change and yelling at oil companies, that's going to solve the problem. It's not going to solve the problem. We need R&D. We need permitting. We need LNG. We probably need nuclear power. We need to get some of these big companies. They want to get from brown to green, but they have to get from brown to green. You can't just close them off. So we have to be very thoughtful about this. And so far, we haven't been. So far, it's just a lot of people yelling and screaming and thinking that that's going to somehow solve this problem. You all want to reduce CO2, but not one of you wants a carbon tax. That's the best way to do it. And every government says that's the best way to do it, but that's not doable. Why is that not doable? Because poor people have to pay. Can we have a carbon tax and return it to lower income individuals? Probably. We better be really thoughtful about this and have a long-term, coherent, consistent, and even renewables. In the United States, it takes five to seven years to get permits to build a solar plant. We're not going to solve it this way. And so I just think we need to really put the best heads together, and I call it a Marshall Plan for Energy, call whatever you want, but a much more thoughtful, coordinated policy. And J.P. Warren is going to try to have a summit, a sustainability summit, to get all the people involved talking about the complexity of this challenge, try to actually walk out with real solutions. You've talked about really getting better government policy before. And last I heard, you're not running for office, so I'm not going to go there with you. But J.P. Morgan clearly lends itself to the debate about these things. We have the J.P. Morgan Chase Institute. Why is it important for you, for the company, to have a perspective on these things and to use your resources to really do that? One, we can. We're a strong company. And if we weren't, I mean, I would understand a CEO being in front of you saying, I got to focus on this. I can't do these other things. But we're involved around the world in develop. I'm proud of what JP Warren does. We help lower income neighborhoods. We help communities. We help cities, schools, states, hospitals, companies. We help R&D. We help countries. We bank the IMF. We bank the World Bank. We do a lot of good stuff around the world, but it also makes us quite knowledgeable. And so their own data and seeing what works around the world around education, infrastructure, immigration, taxation, regulation, healthcare, we have analytical people who can add a lot of value to the policy debate. It's one thing, like take DEI, which we do a lot of. It's what we can do directly, but if you really want to change the world, public policy. That's far more important than what any one company can do. Though, of course, if all the companies do it, it could be enormously impactful. But public policy on education, healthcare, that can change everything. And if you go around the world, like we're in Switzerland, they've got apprenticeship programs that are fabulous. Then we try to disseminate best practices. Well, thank you for bringing up DE&I. We've obviously had great conversations here in the Equality Lounge for the last few days. I run one of our segments for diversity for women. But now we have seven segments overall, which is really remarkable. So this is seven dedicated teams that JP Morgan Chase has to really address the needs of various communities. 
why was it important for you to really dedicate so many well, resources to that? Why don't you that? tell them how this one started? Because this wasn't, yes, this Judy was, this was started internally. Well, Women on the Move, it was started probably about seven years ago, I'd say. And it was just started internally at J.P. Morgan. So it was just focused on, it was a group of senior women who really wanted to help support women throughout J.P. Morgan. Who was asking for it. Who was asking for it, yes. It was really to support the junior women at J.P. Morgan and help them really with training, development, help them see a pathway forward in their career so that they could stay at J.P. Morgan, help manage their work-life balance a little bit better, and just forge their career at J.P. Morgan over time. But then it didn't really take off until we made it a real dedicated effort and where we brought Sam on board to lead the effort. Judy made me go to a cocktail party, <laughs> yeah, which was, I didn't want to go to, healthcare conference of like my eighth thing of the day. And, and I wasn't, also he was losing his voice. I didn't have my voice. <laughs> and she, she said, you got to go, you got to go. And I went into a room it was at a Giorgio Armani, which I've never been at before, and it was 200 women clients. So they were venture capitalists, private equity, lawyers, CEOs, with our bankers. And they were all telling me how great our bankers were, and I was just astounded at this whole thing. It was all started internally, but then we took it and said, this is massive, both internally and for clients and global, and it needs real leadership. So we got a top talent to do it. And to think of all the different ways that you've expanded in multiple different ways. It really is an external effort now, too, like Jamie was saying. So we help women entrepreneurs. We help them with training and resources. Minority women. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a so we have you to thank Judy for really pushing Jamie to go <laughs> exactly. for that and hearing that feedback. Voice or no well voice. Done. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Judy, let me ask you this. You've seen this now over time for many yeah. years. Do you think it's made a difference? You know, all of these efforts focus on diversity and for women in particular. Have we made a difference to people in terms of how they feel? I think we have made a difference. I've been at J.P. Morgan 25 years, and I've seen a huge difference over that time period. I think that the roles that women are in at the company is really outstanding. When you look at Jamie's direct reports, about half of them are women, and they are leading some of our biggest businesses. We have Jen Peepsack and Marianne Lake running our consumer business. We have Mary Ardos, who's here with us at Davos, running our asset and wealth management business. Stacey Friedman, our general counsel. Teresa Heitenrether, who runs our custody and security services business. The list goes on and on. It wasn't that way when I first started. And I think the women in these positions, they both can act as role models and they can, the younger women can look at them as role models and see there is a path for themselves. And then I think when you have a dedicated program like Women on the Move, it does provide those resources, training, development, opportunity to network. And I think that just helps women across the firm. And like we said, it it also helps clients. But I do think it has made a huge difference over time. And I would say these are women with real lives. They're mothers. They have responsibilities elsewhere. And you can look to them, I think, as younger women and say, I can see myself. I think that's a really good point, Sam, because there are times for all women when they're, you just feel like you're in the eye of the storm. And to be able to see someone else who has kind of gotten past that and you think, well, I can do that as well. And then you also, you learn from them. You pick up tips. You learn how to be more disciplined about work-life balance. And, mm-hmm. and I think those things really help. 
So we've looked to instill accountability to managers as we continue on this diversity effort. What do you think has been working and what other opportunities do we have? Working around diversity. One of the things that, so this was like an ingrown effort, which I think has been great and successful. And we want everyone who walks into JP Morgan, I don't care who they are, they could be black or white, male, female, LGBT plus, Muslim, Jewish, disabled, autistic, because we create jobs for all different types. We want them to feel treated with respect and decency where they can contribute to the company to the best of their ability. You have to try that. And then we took the outside too, by the way. We call it the racial equity effort we have taking place. But we also, like I said, we do it for disabled veterans and it works. You know, it's a lot of work, but it works as greatly appreciate inside the company. Mm-hmm. And it's also now very well known outside the company, which means it's easier to hire, it's easier to train, it's easier to recruit, it's easier to get support. And the other thing which about women, they give each other far more support than men give each other. I mean, <laughs> it's not even close. It's a sisterhood. Which, which is one, which is, but it's nice to see. And yeah. have fun doing it. Yes. But that's a great question. And Judy, maybe you can comment on this. I think the old trope was women did not support each other. I haven't really seen that, to be honest. Have you? You know, where are we in the world on this question? When I look back when I started my career, I don't think the senior women then were nearly as supportive as today. Mm. I think maybe they just had to fight so hard to get into those positions that they didn't either have the time or the energy or they just didn't know how to do it. But I think today women are tremendously supportive of their sisterhood. Mm. I think they really do go out of their way from a senior level and then on down Mm. to show that support, to celebrate other women's success. And like Jamie said, it is really nice to see. It is a real like camaraderie, especially at JP Morgan. That's what I've seen over my career. And people have a place to go if there are any kind of Me Too instances. It isn't like one woman who doesn't want to say anything because they want to lose her job. Mm. There's a lot of support and hopefully none of that's ever allowed anywhere inside the company. And I think the other thing is career guidance. I think women uniquely are able to provide that guidance to each other and do that freely. Jamie, what about the men in the organization? Have you also seen more of a willingness to support women in a deeper way? So from a sponsorship, the real advocacy. You talk about accountability. So we do look at, when we do it, if you managing people, how many black MDs do you have? How many black EDs do you have? How many do you recruit? So we have numbers, actual numbers. So when we start the effort to help our black community, we're up 50% black EDs and MDs, or maybe even more at this point. And once you start focusing on something, it's amazing. I didn't even know there were 106 HBCUs. I used to go recruit at several every year. Now we recruited 26, and that might be 50 in a couple of years, and we do a better job in the communities, we do a better job, we put community branches, that was someone's idea to put community branches. We try to be accountable in everything, women, black, Hispanic, Latino, LGBT, and there's tremendous support for it. In my own view, and I could be dead wrong, there's no way for measure, that the maturity of management has just gotten better over time. I don't think anyone is pounding their chest. Not everyone's great, okay? Not all women are great either, by the way, but... Uh, okay, point but taken. It is much more mature. And you're maturing I, nicely, too. I'm, mature, I'm maturing nicely, yes. Only you can say that, I think, Judy. But I think that really will make a difference for more men to be involved. We talk about that a lot. And also for more middle managers to really feel that. I assume whenever you ask for help from men, you get it. Yes. It's not like this hidden resistance around. And I think more and more men are coming out proactively to say, what more can I do? So when we establish women on the move, men globally reached out to me to say, how can I help? And they're saying that not only because they have a sister or a mother or a daughter who work, but because they want to keep the best talent. That's when I knew it was starting to work. They just said, I want to make sure my women stay. 
Let's talk about middle management and the role you think managers across our organization play, but particularly deep down when they're really taking junior level women especially forward. How can we make sure we're really driving things down toward that level? I would actually ask you to answer that question. (laughs) You've got to teach management to manage. This mass middle, the bureaucracy that could take place, the BS, the crossing T's and dot and I's, but they learn by seeing, by behaving, push it down as far as you can go. But I don't know how you can get, sometimes, I'm sure you see it too, you're just not going to get certain people to do certain activities. Sometimes they're bad people, but sometimes they're just not in their mind. They're too busy doing other stuff and they have their own problems. And I would actually punt it back to you. If there's something we should be doing, we should be doing it better. Yeah, I think because we have so many managers that come up through the ranks every year and we're recruiting so many people every year, it really requires you to you know that keep a great focus. great quote, someone asked President Ike Eisenhower, Mr. President, how many people work in the White House? And he thought for a second and said, about half. <laughs> And that's how I feel about middle management yes. sometimes. Yes, I, I would agree with that. You are reminding me, one of my favorite Jamieisms, which I think relates to middle management, is you've always asked people when they have an opinion, is that a rule or an interpretation of a right. rule? Right. And I always think about that when it comes to bureaucracy, because people often want to do the right thing, and they think there's a rule on something, and they just don't question it. And your voice is always in my head. You know, Maybe that's just someone's interpretation. Yeah. Are we getting better at that and at cutting out the bureaucracy? Some people, and I really mean this, some people are good people, but they're bureaucrats. You don't want to fire them. They're good people, but they're bureaucrats. But they will err on the bureaucratic side almost all the time. And in our business, of course, there's this fear. If we make a mistake, oh boy, it reverberates for the company. So if you're in risk, legal, audit, compliance, HR, you're going to always err on that side, whereas sometimes we shouldn't. And people tend to think everything's very important. Like, for example, I've been telling this to the folks in HR. You all do appraisals and stuff like that every year? Fill them out. They always get longer. They always get more complex. Well, skip it for a goddamn year. Your life will go on. And people just don't think clearly that you have to do this. And the only way to fix it, by the way, it's not to get angry at it. It's to understand that it's like weeds in a garden. It's always growing. Meetings are getting bigger. Meetings are taking longer. People want to collaborate. I want you all to come here to collaborate. But I don't want you to over-collaborate. I have to listen to you for 10 minutes bullshit about it, and then you bullshit about it for 10 minutes, then you bullshit about it to make you feel nice. Someone should run the meeting and say, would you mind getting to the point? (laughs) I often start when they start with me. It's like, what would you do? Just go right to what would you do? If you thought about it, you haven't answered, then you know what? Cancel the meeting. Do it again. One of my directors calls it admiring the problem. You're showing me how smart you are by describing a problem, but you didn't come in with a solution. And the other thing, half the time you could have talked to each other and come up with a solution. You didn't need me at all or this group. So you got to fight it by understanding it's there. You got to make it meetings. And I'm like relentless. Nothing gets by me. I don't say that's bullshit. Cut that out. We don't need that. That's too long. Every meeting starts on time. It ends on time. Doesn't end with the follow-up list. It's probably a bad meeting. When they say, oh, we'll pick this up again next week. And I'm saying, okay, Samantha, you go figure it out. Talk to the four people. Come back. Make a recommendation. As soon as you're ready, you don't have to wait for the next week. Just say you talk to the four people that matters too. Here, we looked at option A, B, C, and D. We want to do A, is it okay? And almost half the time, it's okay. So you just got to fight it. And people know it's there. And they just, we have tricks, war rooms, bureaucracy busters, all that kind of stuff that gets at that. And the thing about bureaucracy is it leads to politics, it leads to stasis, and then death. It's like a cancer. That's why you can't take it lightly and why I don't. It also bores the shit out of people. And good people leave. And you end up with a bunch of a morass of bureaucrats. 
Let's talk about these follow-up lists because this is probably a secret sauce here. When Jamie goes to a meeting or goes around the country on the road trips, there are follow-ups. Okay, you might have them. And Judy, I know, oh my goodness, you really have them. That's a real one. And Judy, you are... Re- and, and, and now, that always carried anymore, I have notes, which I took, took four or five notes on my notepad here, things I want to follow up on for the meeting I just had. So this is real. And Judy is responsible for making sure when someone's name is against this stuff, they are doing it. So Judy, tell us what it looks like on that other side of making sure people are accountable. People throughout the company know about Jamie's list. So I can just send an email and say, okay, you're on the list. Let's work to get off it. Because there is nothing worse. Jamie rewrites this follow-up list every Sunday. And there's nothing worse than being transferred from one week's follow-up list to the next week. That is not where you want to be. And I will say people do. They want to get off the list. They want to get the job done. They want to execute. It keeps the company moving. It keeps that constant forward progress, which... Jamie loves, and it does. It gets things done. Yeah. And we have other lists. Like if you run a business, you have an ongoing strategy list. It, it is more regular cadence. I'm not expecting an immediate answer. This is stuff I expect very quickly. And there's no reason it shouldn't be quick. And it goes back to that bureaucracy issue. And when I come in on Monday morning, I'm rat-a-tat-tat. What about this? What about that? What about this? Did you read this? What about that? What about that research? Did you interview the person? How come we didn't do this? How not that? Why not this? What did they do in China? What did they do in India? It all goes on the list. Some in the short-term list and some in the longer-term list. And it goes back to if you don't add energy to a company and drive, it will slow down. And I don't care who it is. I call it guns a-blazing. That's what every Monday morning is yeah. like. <laughs> and they hate it when I come in. My, I, I try to be polite about it, but sometimes I find myself having a hard time being polite about it. When I go on a trip, everyone dreads it when I come back because we all do this, which is I tell them the stupid things that your division is doing. And it's important. When we have our bus trips, if you tell me your online system stinks or your accounts payable system, I don't care what it is. It goes on this list. And I thank you for it. You just did me a favor. You're going to make me a better company. And management's got to learn. It's not a negative to find out this ATM didn't work in Kansas City or why are we filling all these forms? And wherever I go around the world, I get a whole list of these dumb things we do. And Yes. So leaders are a little worried when Jamie hits the road to talk to our employees sometimes. <laughs> they, but they, it is right. First, they love it when I leave. <laughs> But the reentry could be kind of difficult. <laughs> That's the payback. So I'd love to open it up to questions from the audience. And I think we'll send around a microphone here. Ask him anything. Hey, Jamie. And you chaired the business roundtable when they redefined the purpose of a company. <clears throat> and I just wondered what you made of what companies have done on that front since then. And if you think stakeholder yeah. capitalism is working or are you critical? Yeah, I mean, oh. it, it, I mean you got to be very careful about what you mean by it. So we changed it because I was at a, again, with criticism, I was at a, with a, a bunch of reporters, and Steve Perlstein of the Washington Post said, you guys, you're talking about all the great stuff you do, but basically it's all about shareholder value. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, that's the statement of the BRT. I said, well, I've never seen it, but it was. It was like 10 years early. I got the statement. I went to the board, which included Alex Gorski from Johnson Johnson. We really did the heavy lifting in this. And I said, this is not how we run the company. When we all walk in the morning, the first thing we care about is customers, employees, doing things right, communities, regulators. It's very rarely about shareholder value. Like, what the hell does that even mean? I mean, accounting itself is a fiction sometimes about what creates value. If you don't treat customers well, you're going to lose. If you don't have good employees to take your customers, build the systems, the technology, the research, you're going to lose. And we rewrote it and we said, all these things matter. We didn't say one matters more than the other because when you have a team of people, everyone in the team matters. So you have to do each one of them right. And I think that business has been buttonholed into a legal definition a fiduciary definition of 
how you run a business, which is it's all about shareholder value. And the problem with shareholder value, so it still is about shareholder value. It's long-term shareholder value, which you get by doing customers, employees, stuff like that, is that the public reads that as short-term profit-taking at the expense of employees or customers. So now these companies, these 200 BRT companies, the minimum wages there are pretty much almost at the 50th percentile of the average American to start. We all educate our people. They all get medical, dental, healthcare. All these companies do a pretty good job. DEI. So these companies are already among the best. So this notion that somehow they were bad is dead wrong. But we got criticized by everybody in that, the left and the right, which means we probably got landed in exactly the right place. Republicans are, you've opened up the door for a can of worms. Not really, but some senator did tell me that, well, if you really mean it, why don't you put each stakeholder on the board? Really? Do you think it's going to be good for a company? Put some investment bankers on my board to represent employees, and they probably would double my comp in a second. So yeah, I think it has worked. And I think companies are, they truly want to do a good job in it. The problem is in customers, employees, the issue becomes communities. What do you mean? But every small business that operates in a community, if you go to any small town, almost all the people there help the community. They don't call it stakeholder or capitalist. They help the little league. They help the local religious institution. They put their food at a homeless shelter so it's not wasted. For a big company, we do it at the local level. We do it at the national level. And we do it at the public policy level. And those are all the same thing about trying to make the community better. If we had the community better, everyone would benefit. And we have left behind a lot of people around the world and in America that didn't have to be left behind if we had better policies. And then, of course, that would have benefited J.P. Morgan and every other business that serves people. Hi, Jamie. My name is Ashira. My question is, with your efforts focusing on hiring diverse candidates, how do you balance that with merit and qualifications, ensuring you're getting the best and brightest candidates? You'd be surprised. We've never... It really doesn't come up like we're stretching a lot to get a woman or a black person Hispanic. We recruit a lot of people. We hire 40,000 people a year. And what we've done is we've reached out to HBCUs. That's hoping a whole nother universe of people for us. And we hire at all these different levels, giving people a chance and giving people a job and trying people. So it's not like we're sitting here saying, oh, God, we're, gonna, we're picking the person with less skills over the person with more skills. A lot of the skills you all have, even IQ, there are 100 types of intelligence. Some people learn verbally, some people learn visually, some people remember faces, some people remember names, some people remember numbers. Geometrically, they can see things that other people can't see, and some people do math in their head and all that. But EQ is the same thing. Do you relate to people? Do you see that they're suffering? Can you see them over and say, well, you have something you want to say, you don't know, say it, it's okay. You know, like, and there are a million types of EQ, so you're looking for all those things. When you get diversity, you actually get quite a bit of diversity. And the other thing about any kind of diversity, we do these community branches. We hire locally. We use local art. We use local construction. And the town, they just look at that as unbelievable. We do local caterers. And then, of course, if we like them, we recommend them to other people. You're lifting up a community. It doesn't detract from another community. And people have to get out of the mindset like a zero-sum game. It's not a zero-sum game. If we lifted up parts of America that aren't been lifted up, they're not all minorities, a lot of poor white folks... It would be great for society. If Canada and Mexico were failed societies, it would be terrible for America. We have failed inner cities, which is terrible for America. Hi, thanks. Beckett Adams, Washington Examiner. I wanted to go back to your opening statements, and hopefully this isn't too off topic. Is there anything concrete that J.P. Morgan is doing to address the invasion of Ukraine? You said yourself it's unprecedented. We have no idea how long it's going to go on. Are there any steps proactive that you guys are doing to kind of maybe prepare for, like you said, this could go on perhaps for another several years? 
what are we doing to prepare for the economic ramifications felt not just here, but shockwaves back in the States and elsewhere? First of all, we're helping, we're hiring Ukrainians in Poland. We have a couple of thousand people in Poland, so we're training them in English. They're getting jobs over there. We've given aid over there. My wife actually went to visit Ukraine, which I wasn't necessarily for, but just helping a soup kitchen there. And then we're helping other countries that have been hurt by all of this. We help our government in a million different ways, which I can't go through all of them. But And of course, all these sanctions, you know, we're look at what an arm of the government. We do what the government's about. We're not just being told to do by the American government. We've been told to do by ECB, by the UK, et cetera, because we have, obviously, we do business in all those countries. We help do a tremendous job trying to help veterans. We've hired, I think we've hired 15,000 veterans in the last 10 years or so. And if you're talking about being prepared for the risk part of that, you can imagine we run tons of risk scenarios, literally 100 a week. So you can imagine we've run through multiple scenarios around every single country. Countries being cut off, you probably don't focus on this, but there are so many cables that go into a country that bring fiber traffic. People know where those cables are. Pipelines are known. So we run scenarios where if A, B, C, or D happen, how we handle it, how we can help our clients through it, how we can help countries through it. You can't be overprepared for something like this. And there are a couple of terrible ones we run, which are bad. J.P. Morgan will survive, but they're just terrible. And the goal, by the way, is for not for us to survive. It's for us to continue to serve our clients. If J.P. Morgan gets in trouble in a way, and then I have to pull back all this help from people, I haven't done my job. And we did that in the financial crisis. We did that in COVID. And I tell people at that point in time, it wasn't about making a profit. It was about helping you get over this. And if we had a terrible year, so be it. Hello, my name is Maya from Canada. I'm on the WEF advisory. You are clearly a very strong advocate for diversity and inclusion. What would be your advice for how does diversity and inclusion impact your company's bottom line? May I quote you? Just some advice for those of us who are equity advocates, and we receive a lot of pushback when we try and implement some of the excellent solutions you've been talking about. Let me just talk about excellent solutions. So there are solutions people try to implement at J.P. Morgan, which I reject, just so you know, because I think they're bullshit. And I won't go through them. Like, we don't hire a lot of outside consultants. We don't do... I think that stuff is terrible. It's our job to do these things. We get advice from people. We, I look at all these other companies do. I want her to do it. I don't want her to call me up and say, I've got to use somebody else to do something like that. And there are a lot of programs that are like that, that create problems. The company hates it, people reject it, there's body rejection, and it'll take you 10 years before you get real diversity because of all that. So you gotta be very careful about the BS around some of the stuff, there's the real and not real. The argument for diversity, first of all, there are three arguments. Each one is sufficient. You don't have to combine them. Number one, it's simply the right thing to do. Think of it as in a family or anything like that. You don't like leave behind, you may have two smart kids and two kids who aren't that smart. You don't take them out of your will. <laughs> You support people. You support the community and stuff like that. You get them appropriate jobs. You give them the dignity of that job. It is the right thing to do for society. And if you do it right, it's not like you're sacrificing anything. You need people to fill jobs and you need things to take place. And the second is, if I'm picking my team from all Americans and you're picking your team from white men, I guarantee you I'm going to get a better team because I got a much broader universe. And I guarantee you, when we go to the HBCUs, there's a Barack Obama in one of them. And they're there. There's an Einstein somewhere. And you got to seek them out sometimes. So I think we form better teams. I think our teams have gotten better and better over time and quite diverse. And the third is this thing about community. I can't go into a black community and understand all those issues. I can go in there and build a branch that's designed by people there, that hires people there. And then when I go, they say, Jamie, this is fabulous. Thank you. 
We have a thing called a community manager who literally reaches out to the local businesses, the local church, the local schools, invites people in, come as you are, learn about mortgages, learn about savings. And that would be true for the Hispanic community, the Chinese community. I'm Greek. My grandparents were Greek immigrants. So those communities need people who often know the language and know the religion and know what makes people comfortable. And so you'll build and reach out to more people. Each one is sufficient. It works if you do it right. And so if you don't believe me, if you have naysayers, send them to some of these places we've built some of these community branches. And they'll be quite surprised at how active they are, how we become part of that community. Hi, Jamie. I'm curious to know what conversations are happening around global supply chain. And more specifically, as you think about building domestic resiliency versus opening up cooperation globally, it just feels like the supply chain crisis just keeps getting worse. The supply chain crisis is going away. It's sorting out. And honestly, I tell people, take a deep breath because you're not going to be talking about that much more in the future, other than two things, which you just said, which are real. One is supply chains for national security, which deemed to be national security. Remember, every country is going to have its own view. We're talking about semiconductors and rare earths and lithium and cobalt, and we don't need oil, gas. We don't need oil, food, and, and water. We have all we want. China doesn't have enough energy. They import 11 million barrels a day. That's a pretty insecure place to be if you want security. How they're going to get oil security, which is your Middle East, Russia, whatever they think about. You've seen the government put out export controls and investment controls. And properly done, I think that's the right thing to do. That'll take years. So those fabs that Intel is building, you're talking about $50 billion in five years. So you can't change that right away. And that'll sort out over time. It'll cause a little more inflation. It'll cause maybe a little bit of supply chain problem in the meantime. But And the second is people doing it for their own resiliency. So think of Apple is not going to make all their phones in China anymore. They've already moved some to India, some to Vietnam. They'll probably move some to Mexico. Each company will do their own. It's actually already taking place. Like foreign direct investment in Mexico is up 50%, mostly because people are moving supply chains because it's secure and the labor is cheap. It's actually cheaper than China now. And so that'll all sort out. I put that in the category, it's all going to sort out. You're going to read about it, but the world's still growing. It'll all sort out. We might have a mild recession. I might add to it, add to future demand. So right now, because of supply chain disruptions, 13 million cars were sold. That's probably 3 million less than people wanted. That means there's 3 million pent up demand for some time down the road. So it'll sort out. And I do think countries have to do this for resiliency and security and lessons learned. Hi, my name is Barbara. I'm a financial educator from Portugal. First, I would like to ask, do you believe your next successor could be a woman? And what are you doing about financial education for women? Thank you. I was asked in the Senate, actually, we're all up there, all men. Jane Frazier has now joined us. Yes. So we have a Citibank CEO, a woman. But they said, how many of you are going to have a woman in the job next? And not one hand went up. But it didn't go up because the answer was not yes. It went up because we wouldn't say it publicly. And you don't know. Remember, it's a board decision. So I can say whatever I want. It's a board decision. And I wouldn't tell you, but yes, absolutely, the next CEO could be a woman. You can read the papers. Judy mentioned a bunch of people report to me. There are a bunch of women and a bunch of men who can do my job. Who that person is, we don't know, but that will be determined by the board at that time. And there's a playbook how you go about that. And obviously, we talk about it every meeting. So just a little lesson in corporate governance. There's one thing that really matters in corporate governance, literally one. We have cross the T's and dot the I's and proxy proposals. There's one that really matters. And that is that the board meets without the CEO. I'm the chairman and CEO. They meet every meeting without me. Dodd-Frank mandated once a year. I've been doing this since I was chairman and CEO of Bank One. Because I told the board, I'm trying to do the best I can. I'm going to tell you exactly what I think. I'm kind of forthright. I want you to tell me exactly what I'm just trying to do the best I can. So every meeting since I've been chairman and CEO, they've met without me. And they talk about succession on that list. And that's how you get proper succession. They also meet all the senior people. 
They have lunch with them. They have dinner with them. It's completely open. And one of my directors said, and this is what's important, because that makes it an open, transparent company. And that is the most important thing, because that way we admit our flaws. Our directors love it when we get up there and say, this is what we screwed up. We made a terrible mistake. B of A did a better job in this. This one did a better job. And that openness is what creates good governance about every issue. Thanks, Jamie. Bankers are, by definition, conservative people. We need entrepreneurship at a level we've never had before to try and fix the climate change. What are you doing for your bankers to encourage them to lend more creatively so that we can kind of get over the climate change? When you say bankers are conservative, I'm conservative by nature, but not when you talk about entrepreneurship. We do tons of stuff. We spend $15 billion a year in technology. We let people start up. We've had a bunch of failures. We had a lawsuit recently about a company bought that went south. I told our own people, no, I don't want to punish you for being wrong. That creates an even worse thing. I want to do an after-action report. We get punished after the fact by regulators and the press, but not by me. I may say, let's look at what we did wrong. Let's not do it again. Or that was a stupid mistake or something like that. So we're pretty entrepreneurial. We're growing businesses all around the world. We're going to new countries. We're adding people. We have an accelerator, kind of. We started Chase UK Retail, 100% digital. The issue with climate is not banks funding R&D or funding entrepreneurial. We fund tons of entrepreneurial stuff. And the other thing you have to keep in mind, think of the venture side. So we fund a lot of venture investments in 100 ourselves. But there's also big capital. So we do the whole spectrum from venture to small business to big capital. The biggest transition that's going to take place is the big capital. This needs $4 trillion a year. We're already the largest financier of wind power. This new IRA Act, my guess, will be one of the biggest financiers of some of the new R&D stuff in the new pact. One of the largest financiers of affordable housing. Probably, I don't know this for sure, but probably one of the biggest financiers of making your homes warm but with less CO2 heat pumps, et cetera. It's big capital, little capital, but you're talking about $4 trillion a year. You're talking about the whole financial world, banks, investors, sovereign wealth funds, pension plans, insurance companies, most of them being pretty active in it. So I think that's really all the time we have. I just want to thank you both, Jamie and Judy, so much for being here. Thank you to our engaged audience. Oh, sorry. And we have Shelly. I just wanted to make one statement and wrap this up and say when we ask a question of how Jamie Dimon feels about women, diversity, and closing the gender gap, this is someone that walks the talk. We were a little tiny hole in the wall as the girls' lounge at the World Economic Forum in Davos. No one wanted women here. I tell you all that we were invited here and told we want you to come, but you might not feel welcome. And you know who showed up and brought the main stage, the white badge here to a little tiny hole in the wall? Jamie Dimon. Thank you. And look at you now. And you know who comes every year? Jamie Dimon. Thank you. And this is who shows up because this matters. And look what happened. Eight years later, Jamie shows up here because this matters. And this year, we have trended number eight in Davos. On the Davos list, which is crazy as the most influential place in Davos, even with World Economic Forum, which is insane and number one on everyone's list as the most important content at the World Economic Forum. You are competing with a lot of boring people, too. So. <laughs> okay. But honestly, Jamie, I, I really... But that's gratitude, but that's walking the talk. Thank you. And I just, I cannot thank you enough for always being here, always showing up, 
And that is where truth to power comes. And so thank you for always being fully present and being here for all of us and for what really matters. And you measure what matters and you treasure what matters. And this is a true leader. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you, God. Best of luck to everybody. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for those kind words. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Jamie Dimon and Judy Miller. Women on the Move is a direct result of the vision our leaders had for women inside and outside of our firm. And I'm so excited about the progress we've made. We will continue to support women in all stages of their life and fuel their personal and professional ambitions. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. To learn more about Women on the Move and listen to the full library of this podcast, please visit jpmorganchase.com slash W-O-T-M. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.